Welcome to 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Each month, our hosts, Casey, Derek and Scott, take a look at the film catalogue of the legendary Hammer Films production, one picture at a time. Covering everything from the famous Hammer gothic horror films to their science fiction films, their thrillers, their film noirs and comedies, this podcast will offer critical opinion, production notes and historical facts about the films that make Hammer great. Make yourself comfortable, have a cup of tea, and welcome to 1951 Down Place. Welcome, ladies and gents, to another brand new episode of 1951 Down Place. I am your co-host, Casey who will be joined shortly by my own co-host, Derek and Scott. And since, you know, as you can hear, since we're going to be doing a little bit more of a modern horror movie this time around, I decided to modernize the soundtrack just a wee bit to get my own signature in there. And you'll find out why here in a minute. Of course, this month we're talking about Fanatic, also known here in the States as Die, Die, My Darling, the 1965 British thriller directed by Silvio Narizzano for Hammer Films. This film is something new, something different, a little bit different at any rate from our typical gothic fare here, uh, but that's not to say that it's a bad experience. Uh, it sticks fairly close to its horror roots, although it's not strictly horror, so... We'll get back to business here, so to speak. This movie, if you're not familiar with it, stars Tallulah Bankhead, who is fabulous, Stephanie Powers, who is fabulous as well, Peter Vaughn, who you might know from Game of Thrones, Yutha Joyce, who you've met with us before here on the show, as well as the wonderful Donald Sutherland. So, uh, it's got a good cast, so we're excited to dig into this one. Again, that's Die Die My Darling. Now, as far as, far as the modern uh, soundtrack goes, again, this is 1965. That's fairly new for uh, here in 1951 Down Place. But this movie, <clears throat> at least in title, went on to inspire quite a bit of stuff. Uh, as you can hear playing in the background, this has inspired the classic Misfits song, Die, Die, My Darling, which is a classic for my own youth anyways. And so it's nice to be able to get my own signature in here. This very song was also covered by Metallica on their Garage Incorporated uh, bootlegs. So they have that as well. So you're probably more familiar with Die, Die, My Darling than you might expect. Uh, this also went on to inspire the psycho bitty genre, which is always fun. As well as a 2010 Broadway play called Looped. That was uh, took place around the production of Die, Die, My Darling. So that's it. That's our show. Sit back and listen. Now, before we get down to business, I'm going to take a moment here, because as you know, some of you know, I like to poke fun at Derek, give him a hard time, harass him whenever I can. So we're going to take a moment here at this uh, the top of this episode, because just before we release this episode, on the 30th, we found out that Derek is the winner of the 13th annual Rondo Hatton Awards for Best Horror and Multimedia Podcast for his Monster Kid Radio. So, as a uh, longtime co-host of Derek's, but only on 1951 Down Place, that was also nominated for the Rondo Hatton, 
and never a co-host on Monster Kid Radio because that's how Derek is. He never invites me on. Uh, but, you know, what can I do? So, <laughs> I kid, I kid. That's a joke that, uh, that's a worn-out joke, much like Joni loves Chachi. So, uh, again, I was happy to be nominated alongside Derek with the 1951 Down Place podcast, as well as my Bloody Good Horror podcast. But it is really excellent to see Derek win the Rondo Hatton Award, and I'd like to take this opportunity to congratulate Derek for his win, because it's well-deserving. He puts a lot of love and heart into his shows, and it's awesome to see him rewarded for that after so many years. So again, if you'd like to say uh, your own congrats to uh, Derek, join us out on the 1951 Down Place group on Facebook, or head over to the website, and you'll see the myriad ways to contact us, and send Derek a hearty congrats. And also tell him while you're there to put me on his show, damn it. So until next time, let's sit back, grab yourself a drink, enjoy yourself some heart-to-heart time with Stephanie Powers as we dig into Die, Die, My Darling. Hello, I'm Martine Beswick, and I have done three Hammer films, One Million Years B.C., Prehistoric Women, and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Almost forgot that. (laughs) And you're listening to 1951 Down Place, your home for Hammer Films discussion on the web. Die. Die, my darling. Die. Harry! Bye-bye, my darling. Bye-bye. Die. Mrs. Trefoil! Die, my darling. It's quite for the best that I lay you to rest. Die. Die, my darling. You never intended to remain true to this, Stephen. Dangerous, Patricia. Starring Tallulah Bankhead. Also starring Stephanie Powers as the darling. I'll pay you if you let me out of here. In what way, love? Don't! Die. Die, my darling. Die. Die. What would you do when Alan comes to get me? Beg for mercy? Cry. No one is going to find you here, Patricia. No one. There's no one here to help, darling. Only to kill you, darling. Only to kill you. Or worse, darling. On the car, do you? You know what the price is, though, don't you? 
one of the most terrifying suspense thrillers this side of insanity. Die, die, my darling. You must die. Die, my darling. movie poster says this movie is filled with stabbing suspense and sheer shock. And unfortunately for your hosts of 1951 Down Place, only one of us is wearing a red shirt. And that's not a Star Trek joke. We'll get to that here in a little bit. So one of us is in a <laughs> lot of trouble. Welcome to the monthly Hammer Films podcast. I am one of your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and I am joined, as always, by our friends Casey Criswell and Scott Morris. How's it going, gentlemen? It's going well. Do I need to take this shirt off? <laughs> no, please keep your shirt on, Scott. I don't know. How scared are you of Tallulah Bankhead? That's the, I think that's the biggest one. <laughs> In this film? <laughs> Quite. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, it's, you know, the red shirt is probably the biggest issue, but that lipstick, you know, you're doomed, man. Hey, I'm looking good today. <laughs> <laughs> Did you use a mirror this morning? There isn't one in the house. <laughs> At least you have that going for you. Which is nice. <laughs> so Die, Die, My Darling. That's the movie this morning, today, this month. Yes. On the show. Yes. All of from, the above. Yes. All of the above. <laughs> uh, an odd one for Hammer. This one isn't your typical Hammer film. And the audiences of the day didn't really associate it with Hammer because it doesn't have any of the Hammer regulars in front of the camera outside of I mean, I guess Stephanie Powers could be a semi-sort of regular-ish presence. She did three things for Hammer. But, yeah, this was an odd one. Who picked this one? I don't know. Uh, that would be me. Yeah. When I made the schedule. <laughs> 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 that would be me. I was trying to get something in there that fits in with their their crescendos, their more Hitchcockian films. So that's why I picked this movie. I had never seen it. This was my first viewing. Mine too. Me too. Or three. Now, this is one that I've always thought about watching. I mean, it's got a great title. And as is typical here on 1951 Down Place, we usually use the American titles of the films just because that's how we know them and how we can find them. It was released as Fanatic over in the UK. But yeah, the title, Die, Die, My Darling, it's fantastic. Yeah, it is. Before watching the movie, would disagree with you. I didn't like the title. After seeing the movie and how it's used in the movie, I do like the title now. Yeah, no, it's great. It's actually one of those cases where the line itself actually is in the film, or the title itself is actually in the film, right? Yes, and and when it's used, it's really well done. See, and I'm going to go as far because I'm doing the intro this month, I believe, and this will be the first intro or the first time that the Misfits have made their way into the 1951 Down Place uh, podcast. Yeah, doing all oh, my Google wow. search, I had to do a minus misfits because that's all yeah. that came up. <laughs> yep. They, uh, it's a very popular misfits song, uh, Die, Die, My Darling, named after this flick. Also covered by Metallica. Really? Yes. Yep. I don't know anything about Metallica other than they really hated Napster. <laughs> I saw them in concert. <laughs> and Fire Bad. Fire Bad! <laughs> You saw him in concert, Scott. Of the three of us, I think I would have—I would have never guessed our Disney podcaster had seen Metallica in concert. Yes, I saw them in concert when I was in high school. Wow, wow! I don't remember them doing "Die, Die, My Darling." So, 
Were you wearing a red shirt? <laughs> Were you wearing lipstick? I'm pretty sure I was wearing a black shirt at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, Die Die My Darling, it began life as a script that somebody walked into Columbia with. I'm not really sure who. That's It doesn't really say, but Columbia ended up with it, and they're like, ah, I don't know, take it down to Hammer. And Hammer took it and ran with it. I know that Columbia ended up distributing the film, but the production itself was done by Hammer. Um, I guess it's based on a novel mm-hmm. called Nightmare, which I've never read, never heard of, by Anne Blaisdell. But did you see who the screenplay was? I was getting yeah. there, man. I knew Casey <laughs> would love it. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't realize that who the screenwriter was until this morning when we get ready to start this and then pulled up IMDb. That's the closest I've looked at it, so I was a little surprised. Yeah. Yeah. Who are we talking about here? Richard Matheson. Yeah. I am legend. Yes. Yeah. If if you like horror fiction and movies, you know who Richard Matheson is. So that's kind of exciting. Yeah. Scott just announced everybody that he is legend. I think he's just, I think he's modest, but. <laughs> yeah, I think he's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, he has written, I uh, Richard, not me, but Richard Matheson has written <laughs> a couple of my favorite uh, Twilight Zone episodes as well. Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and uh, also one of my all-time favorite films on, is Duel. Oh. I don't know if you guys have ever seen oh, Duel. Yeah, but who have you ever seen Duel? <laughs> <laughs> he wrote that as well, and the screenplay for The Devil Rides Out, which we covered in episode twenty-seven. So what we're really saying is Richard Matheson probably is legend because he is behind a hell of a lot of horror movies that we've all known and loved. Oh, yeah. No, Richard Matheson, the the man was a master. Yeah. Uh, He did so much fantastic work. I mean, we all know I Am Legend, of course. Uh, Duel. Early, early Spielberg effort. I believe it's probably the first Spielberg TV movie, isn't it? It's his first movie. Yeah. Yeah. He also wrote The Shrinking Man. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then something that I really like called Burn Witch Burn or Night of the Eagle. I really dig that as well. He wrote the screenplay for that. So, yeah, Richard Matheson, man, what a what a talent. But it was kind of odd when I first read that he was the screenplay because I always associated him with horror sci-fi. And this film doesn't fit in either of those two categories to me. So it was kind of surprising that he was the screenwriter. Yeah. It definitely doesn't have the typical Matheson vibe. No. Yeah, because when you think Matheson, you think Twilight Zone, Night Gallery, that kind of weird trilogy of terror style type stuff. You don't think this. You don't think Stephanie Powers and a crazy mother-in-law sort of. It depends on which woman you ask whether she was the mother-in-law or not. Oh, that's true. That's true. So who are we talking about? We're talking about Tallulah Bankhead. Oh, she was wonderful in this movie. She chewed more scenery than anyone I've ever seen before. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that was magnificent. (laughs) And she had no apologies about it whatsoever. No. None. Nope. (laughs) This was her last film. You know, it's too bad. Uh, I mean, she did some TV and some voice work briefly, but yeah, it's too bad. She really could have, I feel like, parlayed this into... Crazy old woman roles, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was. I did see an article this week that she. Uh, I think they called it. She helped kick off her and Hammer helped kick off the uh, subgenre of bitty horror. Bitty horror. <laughs> yeah. 
Nice. And Casey just sent a link a little bit ago of a picture of her from the Batman TV series as yeah, a black she- widow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that episode at all. Yeah, me either. No, me neither. But anything like- associated with Batman 66 is awesome. Is awesome. Yeah, there's no other way to put it. <laughs> That's true. That's true. I will dare I will fight you if you say otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> So she was brought in, a little bit of stunt casting, you know, Hammer saw how Joan Davis, was it Joan Davis, was doing, coming back as an older, kind of crazy woman in some of these older films, and... Wasn't it Joan Crawford? Was it Joan Crawford? Yeah, yeah Joan Davis was not the one. <laughs> huh. So yeah, Joan Crawford, whatever. Turn in your card, please. <laughs> uh, whatever. Yeah, my Joan Davis fan club card. <laughs> you know, really looking back on this from now... From our modern perspective, there was this cast was amazing all around. Sure. There was a lot of great people in this cast because you have Donald Sutherland, even though it was a very small part. This is his first film, isn't it? I think so. And he's just a, kind of got a bit part in it, but yeah, he's there. Yeah, he doesn't have a major part. You know, we've got Stephanie Powers that we've already talked about. you got Peter Vaughn, who's really big in uh, Game of Thrones now that we know. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah. And he was great in this. I don't know if we've talked enough about Stephanie Powers, but we'll get back to her. (laughs) But the other one that threw me off, because I kept looking at this lady in the movie. She was uh, Peter Vaughn's wife in this movie, the housekeeper. I kept looking at her, thinking she looked, yeah, and she kept thinking she looked uh, familiar, but I couldn't place it, couldn't figure it out. Looking on IMDb, I I figured out what her name was, was Youth of Joyce. And it kept nagging at me that I I knew that name from somewhere and I couldn't place it and I knew she looked familiar but so I finally got in there digging around and uh, she was in uh, Man About the House that we covered. Yeah, on I was gonna say <laughs> we've we've seen her. <laughs> Always had it easy with a man about the place, steaming up the mirror when I'm making up my face. Yeah, this is Roper. So yep. She's the one that had the drinking issue, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. I suppose serving Tallulah Bankhead would drive you to drink, but... <laughs> wow. Mrs. Trefoil. <laughs> Speaking of her of Tallulah Bankhead's drinking, the one thing that I found... <laughs> Tallulah Bankhead drinking? Yes. <laughs> About okay. her drinking. That uh, this was from the Authorized History of Hammer Films by Marcus Hearn and Alan Barnes that Hammer was actually very worried about her health and especially her drinking. So they assigned accountant Roy Skaggs to kind of watch her. And he went on set and saw her pouring some tea. So he sent a note to Jimmy Carreras that read, problem over, she's drinking tea. Well, that same afternoon, Bankhead (laughs) fell over drunk. So he had to send another note to Jimmy saying, sorry, there was scotch in the tea. <laughs> Oops. Suppose you're going to do it. Um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I didn't read any of that about Bankhead having a, a drinking issue on set. I knew she was kind of difficult. That a couple of times she stormed off set and she just was not a very pleasant person to work with, according to the filmmakers. The director himself said that uh, she was. Touchy. Yeah, he wrote, uh, no words can express my relief. But this is after the film was over. No words can express my relief that this picture is over. She was magnificent, but impossible. Yep. She was also really upset at the end of the film, that shrine that she has in the cellar. Yeah. She was upset that they had 
early pictures of her, you know, representing the characters in youth, but they use pictures of her and she hated that, which kind of surprised me a little bit. She threw a tantrum at first, feeling it was an impertinence. She threw occasional tantrums and walked off the set three times. Uh, this is what uh, Peter Proud, this production designer, said about that and just her overall attitude on set. You know, that would have to be hard to deal with, knowing that some of that rage that is in the character is actually just kind of beneath the surface on the personal level. I, I couldn't imagine working in that environment on such a stressful type story anyway. Maybe this is the reason why this is her last film. She did a lot of stage work. because She was known for the stage at the time, so... Maybe the filmmakers just didn't know what they were getting into when they signed her. So we talked about Donald Sutherland. We talked about Youth of Joyce. Donald Sutherland, I'm talking to him for a little bit more. I was a little disappointed because I was very excited when I saw him in the cast. Yeah. And so as Scott said, he was. it's a very, very, very small part. I think he did fine with the part he had, but he just wasn't there very much. So that was kind of disappointing to me to not see him show up. When his more. name popped up in the credits, I was like, oh. Yeah. Because you know, Donald Sutherland's a legend—he's a legend in himself. That dude's a fantastic actor. No, he's great, and he really didn't have much to do here. But I guess we all got to start somewhere, right? Yeah, I don't think he, I'm not disappointed with the with his acting or anything like no. that. I was just hoping he'd be a bigger part of this movie. Sure. Can we talk about Stephanie Powers some more? Yes. <laughs> She's cute. <laughs> do you like her? Yeah, I'm gonna send her a note. <laughs> I like you. Do you like me? Check yes or no. No, she's adorable. <laughs> I'll give it to her after gym class for you. Oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> I'm going to ask her out before you do. No. <laughs> That's the kind of friend I am. <laughs> <laughs> do we need to sit down and have a heart-to-heart conversation about this case? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I used to watch so much Heart to Heart. Oh, I did too. And she was a large reason why. <laughs> Same here. <laughs> I, I don't think I ever watched Heart to Heart. My mom might have, but I don't... Probably not for the same reasons you did. But I... I <laughs> um, yeah, I don't remember watching it very much. Like I said, she did a little bit of Hammer. And in the book Hammer Glamour by Marcus Hearn, they call her Hammer's favorite American starlet. Even though she only did a few films for him. I, I'm okay with that. I'll call her. I'll call her my favorite American Hammer starlet. Why not? <laughs> she's she's adorable, man. That was the other thing with this movie that surprised me. And just to get a little bit off of the Stephanie Tapp Powers topic, but she still plays into it. The uh, for a Hammer film, and I got to think it's because of the Columbia connection. There is a whole lot of non-British people in this movie. Yeah, I mean, you got Sutherland, who's a Canadian. Yeah, and you got Tallulah Bankhead, who's American. Powers, who's American, which is pretty uh, heavily loaded for a Hammer flick. We're used to Hammer casting one or two typically aging American stars. You know, somebody they can get cheap, but somebody they can still sell to the American audience. This one, if you didn't say Hammer films at the very beginning of the movie in the titles, it doesn't feel like a Hammer film. And the cast has a lot to do with that, I feel like. Oh, yeah, definitely. Well, the first logo that comes up is Columbia, at least on the version I watched. Yeah, I mean, yep. they distributed. So, I mean, it's the only time you see Hammer and it feels so out of place. During that opening credit sequence with the cat and the mouse, which is weird, by the way, they have the Hammer film logo in there in that kind of creepy, kind of scary font. And that's yeah. the only thing in that font. The rest of it is all just normal font. Yeah. You know, whatever the font is. But then they got Hammer films and it's all in that 
like spooky. lightning scoop, spooky. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they had to remind you. Well, and I guess he saw Anthony Hines in the credits, you know, one of the regulars at Hammer, but, you know, as a producer, was he the producer? Uh, but yeah, anyway, it, it doesn't feel like a Hammer film at all. And it feels yeah. like something that takes place in the UK. I mean, you've got people visiting England. So yeah, of course it's in the UK, but it, it doesn't feel Hammer-ish. I, I mean, I still liked it overall, but it just doesn't feel like a paranoiac or any of the many Hitchcocks that they did or anything like that. I didn't get a sense of it being in England until the end of the movie when the fiancé goes to that pub and then I'm reminded that, oh yeah, we're in England. Yeah. Yeah. You get a little bit of it at the very, very beginning when they're driving on the wrong side of the road, but other than that... (laughs) (laughs) Well, for me, it was the indicator was the uh, non-paved roads everywhere. (laughs) No offense to our UK listeners. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to say, Casey, you need to come up to northern Indiana just a little bit more. (laughs) Oh, I grew up up there, but even there, even our dirt roads in northern Indiana aren't quite what these were. This is like a couple tracks throughout the countryside. <laughs> it was definitely – it was like a uh, for real, you know, drive two miles down the road and when you see the Johnson's dog barking on the left-hand side, turn left there and then <laughs> – Or don't so you don't run into Tallulah Bankhead. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a oh. – Crazy and person. the other thing, yeah. the other thing that for me that made this stand out to, as a non-hammer film, where it made it feel like a non-hammer film, was uh, the only regular hammer actor that I noticed was Youth of Joyce, which we saw in, uh, as I said, Man About the House, which is another one of their modern ones. So they didn't really have any of their standards for their gothic horror stuff in here either. Yeah, there's very little connecting it to anything that you typically know of Hammer. I guess it was shot on Elstree Studios, but other than that. There's just not much. I mean, even the music, the director, it's all a total, totally different crew. But I think it's time to ask. Scott, is there any uh, bond connections in this movie? <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> it was shot in England, wasn't it? Yes, it was shot in England. <laughs> no, I have, I've got uh, James Bond, I've got Disney... You're going to hate my James Bond connection. I can tell you that right now. <laughs> Maurice Kaufman. He played Alan Glentower, who was uh-huh. the fiancé in Die, Die, My Darling. He was married in real life to Honor Blackman, who played Pussy Galore in 64's Goldfinger. That, <laughs> wow. That's, his, that, that's the best that, he can do is he's married to somebody? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I told you you weren't going to like it. <laughs> uh. Now I can nice. do, I could do a little better with Disney. Oh, Steph- he was in the Abominable Doctor Fives. Actually, I, I don't know if you've seen that, Scott, but that's a fantastic Vincent Price film. Anyway, go ahead. Disney Stephanie Powers. She was in two different Disney films. Uh, first, she played Kate, a girl next door type who runs a local boat rental and sailing school in the 1970 film The Boatniks. God. <laughs> But her bigger role was of Nicole, a flight attendant who lives with Grandma Steinmetz, the aunt of mechanic Tennessee Steinmetz, and she also lives with Herbie the Love Bug in 1974's Herbie Rides Again. All right, Herbie, let's get going. Miss Harris, you're obviously an intelligent young woman. Why do you pretend to talk to this little car like that? People might wonder. 
Don't listen to him, Herbie. Just move it. I can understand Mrs. Steinmetz thinking of this car as a person. Old age has many fantasies. It only proves that she needs Mr. Hawk's help. Remember, Alonzo Hawk sent him. You and I know better, don't we? I would... You stubborn bucket of bolts. You always have to do everything your way. She also appeared as herself in the 1989 TV special, the Disney MGM Studios Theme Park Grand Opening. You've got that on DVD, I'm sure, right? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) But she's not my only Disney connection. We've got Peter Vaughn, who plays Harry in Die, Die, My Darling. He played a police sergeant in the wonderful world of Disney presentation of A Horse Without a Head, 1963. Was that the prequel to The Godfather? (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, it's the sequel because of the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now the horse doesn't have that. Oh, you're right. You're right. <laughs> and I also want to do a quick shout out uh, to Don Falcos, uh, one of the listeners. He wrote in to say that uh, he's checked pretty thoroughly, but he has found no Doctor Who connection with Die Die, my darling. Oh. And he's already sent me connections for next month's film. So thanks, Don. Appreciate that. <laughs> So there you go. Not a very good Bond connection, but some good Disney ones. And, and no Doctor Who. I'm floored by that. Oh, we already talked about where a lot of this cast is American. So uh, That's true. That's true. Yeah. Any Harry Potter connections? Did they have I, a Harry Potter thing? No, that I don't know. You know what this movie needed, though? You know who this movie really needed? Peter Cushing. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. Scott uh, Bayo. Scott Bayo. <laughs> <laughs> I was searching for Oliver Reed in my mind, and then Scott Bayo showed up. <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> the werewolf of Milwaukee. Oh, God. <laughs> I want to see somebody remake Paranoiac with Scott Bayo in the Oliver Reed role. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> I do for about five minutes. <laughs> I still want Scott Bayo on the show. Oh, God. If anybody knows Scott Bayo <laughs> Or Scott, if you're listening, <laughs> we'd love to have you on the show. <sighs> and if you know, you know, Aaron Moran's number, she can show up, too. <laughs> I don't Just know how close sh- you guys are anymore. <laughs> make sure she's wearing red and lipstick. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> uh. And we're off the rails. Yeah, that 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 happens around here. Well, Scott, do you have a, a breakdown of the movie? I have a plot summary for you. Patricia Carroll, uh, Stephanie Powers, and Alan Glentower, Maurice Kaufman, return to London after spending some time in the U.S. They've returned to be married, but Patricia tells Alan that there is something that she must do before they are wed. See, Patricia was engaged once before to Stephen Trefoil. Now, he died in a car crash, which Patricia believes wasn't an accident. Stephen's mother, who Patricia has never met, lives outside of London, and Patricia believes that she owes it to her to drop by and pay her respects to the past before starting her new life with Alan. Alan is not happy with the idea, but Patricia is off on her errand to return by noon the next day. She shows up with Mrs. Trefoil, uh, which is Tallulah Bankhead, who was an actress in her youth but was rescued from that life of sin and debauchery when she married an army officer who is now deceased, who had the opinion that any sort of physical pleasure or worldly happiness was sinful 
and he converted his wife into that way of thinking as well. Now, she runs the Trefoil House with marathon religious services and no earthly pleasures at all. Bland food, no makeup, no mirror to show vanity. Mrs. Trefoil also believes that once you are betrothed to someone, it is forever, including the afterlife. So when she meets Patricia, a more liberated woman of the time, Mrs. Trefoil takes it upon herself to cleanse Patricia so she can be ready for Stephen in the afterlife. Patricia attempts to leave, but is overpowered and locked in the attic, where she is denied food, beaten, and subjected to constant Bible readings in hope that she will denounce her new fiancé. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Hilarity ensues. <laughs> and that's my first issue with this film. Is it trying to be a comedy, at least for the first half of the film? Why do you ask? You know, when you would see... Mrs. Trefoil doing the religious things. There was always kind of a, a, a music sting or something that was trying to give it a more lighthearted feel, at least in my opinion. Like they were trying to play her off as somebody that is just completely crazy, but in a goofy sort of way. Evil man. Evil man. What did he do? Forswore his marriage vows. Really? And they let him stay on? Yes. That is the depth to which this church has fallen. He remarried Patricia. Two years after his first wife died, he married again in this very church. Is that what you meant? When you said he he forswore his marriage vows, you meant he remarried? You don't approve of, uh... Approve? How monstrously inconceivable. On the day of resurrection, to meet two wives. Mrs. Trafford, there isn't a church in the world that doesn't allow second marriages after death. Well, some even allow a... You condone this evil, then? Evil? People marrying twice? It's against God's law. You have fallen into deeper error than I imagined. But innocently so, I must believe, so as not to contaminate Stephen beyond redemption. And you, a wedded woman? Wedded? You cannot mean you do not realize. You are my child. You are Stephen's wife. But both of a marriage, it is all the same in the eyes of God. Wife? You are Stephen's wife. You should be grateful that you have been permitted to escape any gross, barony consummation of that marriage. And can live out your life as a virgin until it shall please God to call you to Stephen's side. Mrs. Trefoil, not only do I not consider myself Stephen's wife, but I feel I must tell you. That if Stephen hadn't died, I wouldn't have married him anyway. There's no malevolence behind it, just kind of a, a break from reality and ha ha ha, look at the crazy person. Exactly. I don't know that I picked up on that myself, but... I didn't pick up on the musical stings being used to accentuate that, but I did see that in Stephanie Powers' performance. Because at first, she, she thinks it's pretty darn silly, too, right? Yeah. I mean, she kind of laughs and mocks and, am I a virgin? You know, just the little... All I asked for was a mirror. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I did pick up on it there, but I got more of a... She doesn't know what she's really in for. This is how we kind of cope with stressful situations sometimes kind of vibe. I didn't pick up on the musical stings, although it's weird to say because I'm the music guy normally. <laughs> well, maybe it was more of Stephanie Powers' performance, especially early on, because yeah. I was thinking that they were going for 
And the I old dark to, house? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly where I was going. I, said, I hate to bring this up, but the old dark house feel. <laughs> that definitely falls away about midpoint of the film. Oh, sure. When, when she is taken prisoner, that all falls away. Nana. Come on, miss. Don't you touch me. Anna, what do you think? Oh, oh, oh. She gets locked in the door. Locked in the attic. Locked in the well. She gets locked in her room at one point. Not for very long. Yeah. Because she starts breaking out the windows. Yeah, I didn't pick up on that, but but yeah, I did get it with the powers performance. So. Now, we've already mentioned a little bit about Mrs. Trefoil and the way Tallulah Bankhead was portraying her, kind of chewing the scenery. What did you guys think of her performance and how she was just being very religious? Uh, it seemed pertinent to the character. Well, I mean, did you get a sense of craziness from her? Oh, yeah. I didn't get the crazy at first. I got the just not getting it kind of selfish at first i'd say eccentric would be a better word yeah yeah but when patricia shows up when 70 powers shows up there just seems to be they're both operating on a different frequency now patricia's trying to say i'm only here for an afternoon or an evening and she's not hearing any of it and it's either kind of a willful ignorance or just doesn't care you're staying for dinner you're staying the night kind of thing i didn't get the I guess maliciousness in it, the the crazed energy from it until later on in the film. I don't know when that switch happened for me, but I did think there was a switch. Oh, I can pinpoint it exactly when it happened for me. There's the scene after she shows Stephanie Powers to her room. And first off, she says this was Stephen's room and just kind of lovingly caresses the door. This was his room. His? <laughs> but then later, I don't know if she's in Stephen's room or in her own bedroom, but she's laying in bed, cuddling a teddy bear, talking to Stephen. And I got the strongest Norman Bates vibe off her. I actually thought this was going for Psycho in reverse, that the mother uh -huh. survived. And I totally expected at the end of the movie, we were going to see a mummified Stephen in that cellar. Yeah, I, I somewhat expected that, too. It was very psycho. I felt like they started dancing around that, too, because then they started talking about how Stephen died under mysterious circumstances. Maybe he re wasn't really an accident. So I did think we were going to find Stephen's body somewhere. But she was always talking to him. Yeah. When that started happening, I knew this woman was a few fries short of a Happy Meal. <laughs> <laughs> That was just after the mirror scene, right? When Stephanie Power or Patricia discovers there's no mirror in the room? Well, it starts off that she's in there talking to Stephen, and then Patricia knocks on the door. Because and asks she, for a mirror. Yeah, and she asks for a mirror when she also notices there's no mirror in that room. There's a dresser with the mirror removed. You know, for there being no mirrors, she really took care of herself pretty well. Stephanie Powers, that is. <laughs> I guess she had the little compact. Yeah, she right? had a compact. Okay. Duh. 
I'm not the one wearing lipstick, all right? <laughs> but when they had the, the scene of Mrs. Trefoil talking to her son, that's when I realized that this woman was, was really crazy. And then, and I don't know what relation to her is. Is it Harry? What was mm-hmm. his re- his relation? Because he, at one point, says that he's next in line uh, in her will. Basically, right. was going to inherit everything. But I never quite understood how they were related. He was related to her husband. So he, he's uh, son-in-law. I, I don't know if it was a direction direct to like son-in-law. I thought it was like a cousin or something like that. Because doesn't she say at one point she only keeps him on because he was related to her her old husband? Yeah, but I never understood how. The exact connection. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember that. I know Donald Sutherland's character is supposed to be mentally challenged, but I also got that feeling from Harry as well. Maybe it was just his over-creepiness. But yeah, I, I, don't know that, I don't know that I would say that Harry was mentally challenged, but he was definitely unhinged. That dude had a dark side. He was broken. Yeah. And with him, it almost felt like it was uh, a more willful brokenness. With Donald Sutherland, I, I don't know anything about his backstory, really. But you know, with Harry, it seems a little bit more willful. and Which makes sense if he's related to the husband that we no longer meet. But obviously, he brainwashed, converted Mrs. Trefoil into this life. So there might be some sort of craziness in that family line. I mean, when you look at it, the husband, who we never see outside of a painting, is is kind of a a character in his own way, just kind of behind the scenes, even though he's been long dead. Because if it wasn't for the actions that he took with his wife, none of this would have been happening. Right. I kind of half expected his body to show up at some point as well. <laughs> True. <laughs> like instead of the, like around the shrine or something like at the end? Yes. Yeah. Or in the shrine. <laughs> he is the shrine. <laughs> Especially when you find out that Mrs. Trefoil hasn't truly given up everything that she says she's given up. Oh, yeah. That was a great scene. Which, you know, that self-loathing would then drive the marathon Bible sessions, you know, before dinner. Oh, yeah. I mean, the self-loathing would drive all of it. Yeah. Really. That marathon Bible session. Read from Deuteronomy, chapter 1, verse 1. These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side of Jordan in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea, between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Azeroth and Dezahab. Verse 2. There are eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mansia and the Kadesh Bania. Amen. Verse 3. And it came to pass in the 40th year, in the 11th month of the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. Verse 4. After he had slain Sihon, the king of the Amorites, which dwelt in Heshbon, and Ab. The king of yeah, I like the way they showed the passage of time because when Stephanie Powers shows up there and you see everybody and you've got Mrs. Trefoil up there on that little stage with the podium in front of her with the, that old, huge, oversized Bible, 
but it's bright sunny outside. Yeah. And she starts reading, and Stephanie Powers is thinking, you know, maybe a verse or two, and then we can dig in to eat, because she's obviously hungry, because they show a couple, and this is another one where I thought the humor was coming in. Yeah. Because they show her... Or you actually hear her stomach growling. Verse 22. I shall eat it within thy gates. Yeah, her stomach growls and you see her nodding off and yeah. all that stuff. But then the sun goes down and she's still reading Bible verses. <laughs> Doesn't she say later that she reads an entire book out of the Bible every day or before a meal? And she has, and when she's done, she starts all over again and she's read through the entire Bible, was it nine times? Some number i can't remember exactly what it's devotion man or fanaticism if you want to play off yes. the uk title <laughs> but then another thing that i thought was trying to bring in this humor is from that same scene is mrs trefoil realizes that patricia is wearing makeup because she leaves some lipstick on a glass so she tells anna she's always yelling for anna to come in and clean the glass and tells Patricia to go clean her face and get that off there. So she goes upstairs, cleans the lipstick off, comes back down. The table's clear. Like dinner's over. Yeah. She got one bite of bland food and that was it. What were they eating? Something. All I could tell, it was, it, it, they mentioned that it's a uh, vegetarian because they're all vegetarian in this house. And go just, ahead make a vegetarian joke. I know you guys are waiting for it. Go ahead. Actually, no, I was thinking, <laughs> There's got to be some sort of non-vegetarian food hidden around the house if there's Mrs. Trefoil's hiding some other things. I'm sure she's got a snack of foods, stack of food somewhere in that house. <laughs> she's got a couple packets of jerky upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Snap uh, into a Slim Jim. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but the, you know, That's the, right. We just had a macho man moment on 1951 <laughs> Down Place. You could almost play this into one of those Snickers commercials that they've been doing now. <laughs> You get too religious when you're hungry. <laughs> Mrs. Trefoil, shouldn't you have a Snickers? Oh, man. <laughs> but I thought they were trying to play up the humor that Stephanie Powers didn't get, get to eat anything. Yeah, I mean, I could see where you get that vibe from from that kind of stuff. Because it was. It was kind of weird. Uh, some ways it felt like kind of Disney in, the, in that aspect in those areas. I can definitely see that. It's kind of a cruel thing to do to somebody, but it's not played up for the cruelness on camera. It's kind of more of a, a jokey, like, aha, she didn't get to eat because she was wearing makeup, the whore. I mean, okay, <laughs> yeah. that's not Disney, but. Uh, <laughs> that and haha, this lady's crazy. Yep. Oh, I smell your perfume. Well, I can't wash that off, can I? Like, well. Now I'm getting a strong uh, watcher in the woods type of feel off this Yeah. Film. Yeah. That kind of style. Mm-hmm. Sure. But then again, the crazy old woman in that film redeems herself. So true. Not in this film. <laughs> <laughs> no. Because then we get Patricia's trying to leave and we find out that Anna must be on the weekends an MMA fighter or something. <laughs> <laughs> Either, Anna's the reluctant heavy in all of this. <laughs> yes, she is. She takes down Stephanie and pins her down and lock her in her room. Yeah, I love the fact that she starts breaking out the window, just throwing a chair through the window. Yeah. And then what got me is when they locked her up into the attic, and she, and she goes to the window to look out. There's bars behind the window. So who did they have locked up there before? Yeah. The, the <laughs> attic is the uh, the safe room, I guess. <laughs> I liked when she chucked the chair out the window. 
and there's a big crash. It lands in there in the front yard, like broken off stuff like that. And then you know, that's when you see Donald Sutherland walk Donald, Donald Sutherland walk by and go, "Ooh, chair." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you see him earlier before that, where you know Stephanie Powers is trying to call to him, and he's chopping wood, and he's got like an inch thick piece of wood. I mean, branch, not very big. And he's hitting it a couple times and then it sticks in the blade and he's still chopping with that thing sticking in the blade. <laughs> you know, his character could have been played for goofs and laughs too, but I felt like that's about as far as they went with that. They, otherwise they seem to be kind of respectful about that. Yeah, they're definitely respectful, but I think they could have done more with them too. True. I mean, it is Donald Sutherland for crying out loud. Yeah. Well, obviously, being his first role, they didn't know what they had. True. I mean, they didn't even let him talk, really, and he's got such a great voice. But he had done some work over in the UK as well. Uh, he was in Dr. Terror's House of Horrors, which is fantastic, and that's over at uh, Amicus. He did that. So while this might have been his first film role, it's not the first film that was released that he was in. He was also in Castle of the Living Dead in 1964. But I, I think that one was probably released before, Die, like while Die Die was in production, post-production. I don't know. Uh, the details on that. But, yeah, no, I mean, he's fantastic. Normally, it's unfortunate we didn't get more of him in here and we had to spend more time with – I I think he's a good actor, but I really didn't like hanging out with Harry. No, I got to – I think that's testament to his – the acting he did in this role. He was definitely – he made you feel very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. He played unhinged very well when there was these scenes where he was taking off. The, you could tell it was completely obvious. There was a great sublayer story to this between Anna and Harry going through it because there was at one point where Stephanie Powers is try, offering her like 2,000 pounds if she'll let her go and whatnot. But then Tallulah Bankhead shuts it down because she just says, how long do you think Harry's going to stick around if you have all that money? And then you see Harry when he's ta- – you know he's obviously a womanizer. They can show a good scene with him and Anna, him shaving and stuff when you see uh, Stephanie Power sneak out of her room, her attic room. And then there's a whole scene that follows with him chasing her around in the woods and everything. He's got that leer. He's obviously got uh, intentions towards Stephanie Powers because he likes what he sees and he's going to get what he wants regardless of what anybody else wants. And the guy, the guy just played it really well because, like you said, it was hard to enjoy being with him on these scenes because he played it so creepily. Mm-hmm. Now, see, I the scene that uh, you mentioned where he's shaving and talking with Anna, and he, he's telling her his intentions is he's going out to the bar to, and Anna knows he's out there to pick up women. They're they're married. I yeah. thought I thought this scene. Now he he was creepy, but it really undercut Anna's character. Because we've already seen she's sort of a little bit of a badass the way she takes down Stephanie. And Harry is kind of a dweeb. I would think Hannah would just dominate him. You see, but at the same time they show, because they made reference throughout the movie that she was the reason that they stayed there for 16 years with Tallulah Bankhead, with Mrs. Trefoil. It's the impression I got. And so I think there's also a factor that she's kind of uh, beaten down the way that anna is portrayed in this film i don't see her as a type of person that would put up with harry's shit i could see that but at the same time you only see her being a badass when she's instructed to by mrs trefoil so i think she's kind of also the type of uh, she's a broken character who's been so worn down by mrs trefoil and her actions and her zealotry and beliefs and stuff like that that 
I could very easily see that, like when Harry's talking about going out pick up a women and stuff, she is going to argue with him, but only to a point, and she's not going to put a stop to it because I don't know. She's kind of broken, and so there's nobody there telling her you need to put a stop to this. So she's just kind of kind of deal with it because she feels trapped and stuck and doesn't know what to do. I see both sides. I see that yeah. she's definitely a victim, not as much as Patricia is, for example, but I do see that she's been victimized. I suppose you could even dig a little deeper and see that if Harry's in it for the money and if, if she put up a fight with Harry, maybe she and Harry don't stay married and then she doesn't get her cut. I don't know. But yeah, no, I see where Scott's coming from too, though. Yeah. But I think that if Mrs. Trefoil told Anna to hurt Harry, she would. Yeah. If, if yeah. Mrs. Trefoil told her. And there's no way in that house that she doesn't know everything that's going on. She's got to know that Harry is sneaking out and going to the bar. Why doesn't she punish Harry? I mean, she does eventually in the film, but for other reasons. <laughs> but why doesn't, in the past, why hasn't she punished Harry before? To me, it's because it helps keep Anna in that victim state of mind. And so it's easier for her to control her. Or she doesn't want Harry going off and telling the police. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there are some interesting things happening behind the scenes here that I see where you're coming from, Scott. And, man, we could really kind of talk about that for a few hours, too. Yeah. I mean, even before Patricia shows up, this house is messed up. Obviously, she's got some money because it is a big house. But I can't imagine she has a lot of money unless she just has it in boxes somewhere. Because the house seems to be run down. So just because she's not spending any money on salt and makeup and mirrors. <laughs> That's where all the money's coming from. Putting myself in you know, Anna's shoes, for say, there is an amount of money that would make me want to stay in that situation. And I don't know, if Anna decides to leave, I don't see any way Mrs. Trefoil could stop her. Unless she had the gun. Yeah, with that pistol. That, and that's the only way. I don't understand Anna's motivation in this film, why she's staying. That, that I just don't understand. I could definitely see that, but I think there's a big victim complex going on there. Sure. My take on it. So, But I could definitely see why, you, why that would be hard to figure out because it is strange. But I don't know. To me, that's why the, what made this movie enjoyable is there's a lot of layers to it and there's a lot of complexity to the characters. We didn't talk about the director at all. Silvio Narzano didn't do anything else for Hammer other than this. Uh, I think he tried to take us on the journey to from the comical to the batshit craziness of the woman uh, holding Patricia captive. Uh, he looks like he did a lot of mystery type work, a lot of television, that sort of thing. I mean, he is the one who said that Tallulah Bankhead was kind of a nightmare to work with, but I don't see a lot of film in his background. Looking through his IMDb, I don't see much that I've seen outside of this. He was a producer on a 1952 series called Tales of Adventure where they did a, a run of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But other than that, that's the one thing that grabs my attention. I'd be interested in checking that out, I suppose, because I like that story. But other than that, I don't see much. It's a lot of mystery, though, and I do see a little bit of the mystery aspect in this. Yeah, I see that later on he went in – Directed, uh, well, I don't know if he directed or produced uh, some Miss Marple mm -hmm. and Agatha Christie stuff. I could see a little bit of that in this. I wonder if any of the things that he did is he had done for Columbia, and that's how he got attached to the picture. Because it's definitely not <laughs> an in-house production with Hammer. Or it doesn't feel like it was generated in-house. He's Canadian, so maybe that's how he got Donald Sutherland. Huh. Could be. I definitely think you're right, though. I think he came from a Columbia connection, then a Hammer, because, I mean... 
the feel of this movie is that it's hammer and name only. Yeah. Like they got in there as far as distribution or something or help pay for it. Sure. I mean, like I said at the beginning, we have Anthony Hines as a producer and uh, we have Philip Martell as a musical supervisor and he'd been doing work for Hammer in this era in the 70s as well. And I believe, yeah, Roy Ashton also did some of the makeup. Can we talk about the blood with the scissors? <laughs> yeah. They look terrible. Yes. Yeah, even at the very end too. It had that melted red crayon look. That you see in, say, like the original Dawn of the Dead. I was which, wondering if you were going to mention that one. <laughs> yeah. Which isn't bad per se. It just isn't great. And for Hammer specifically, for a Hammer film, I expected the blood to look better. Well, can we talk about that whole scissor scene a little bit? Sure. What happened to the scissors? You never see anybody take them away. So I'm thinking they're still in that sink. And why doesn't she use those as a weapon later on? I thought the same thing, man. I was thinking, oh, no, she just got stabbed, but now she's got a weapon. She's got a weapon, but it never comes back. We didn't miss it, Casey, did we? I don't think so. I also thought the way that scene was shot was just weird. The whole construction of it was just odd to me. And the the jump from the struggle to her just dealing with the wound, it just seemed odd. She looked like she was in a lot more pain than, I mean, if you look at the scissors, it was like barely, not even a quarter inch into her. There's no way she would have been that hurt to have to go into the bathroom and be, you know, that much obvious looking pain. And it was just an excuse for Anna to get in there and tear up all her clothes. (laughs) Unfortunately, she didn't tear up the clothes she was wearing, but that was. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she had been starved at this point, too, so she's already a little weak, but still just seemed. I felt like it was a scene that was put in there to justify her ending up with a weapon. And then we never saw her with the weapon again. Exactly. Now, granted, gun beats knife in any <laughs> in a fight, right? But Mrs. Trefoil was the only one that ever brandished that weapon. There was yeah. a couple times that Anna would come up and bring her food with, without the gun. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Harry comes in there. She really could have used the scissors against Harry. I don't know. He would have figured out they were there because he knew the lamp was there. I don't know how, but he did. What about Harry's fate? What did you think about that? Why did they leave? she leave him dead in the sink with the water running? I don't know for why the water was running. For, for what felt like days. I don't think she could have picked him up and moved him. Yeah, I don't either. So apparently he uh, maybe he fell there and turned it on. I, she just walked away. I don't know. Or maybe that was to show how l- little she cared about it. That she just walked away and left him laying there like that. Well, the fact that where he was in the cellar left there led credence to me thinking that Stephen's body was going to show up. Yeah. That she collected the bodies down there. I like Harry's uh, demise because, I mean, it showed that he was finally fed up with it. He was going to stand up to her, even though it didn't work out for him. But there was that aspect to it. I don't know about after he was gone, the fact that he was green like that. Well, I can tell you why she left him there. Because the first thing she does is get all... If you draw blood, you must spill your own blood. And she goes and slices her own hands after that, which was a really kind of a creepy scene. But just leaving them there with the water going. Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. And it seemed the way they framed it, it seemed like he'd been laying there for a couple days with the water pouring on him. Maybe that's why maybe that's why he's green. He was moldy. There are a couple of jumps in time here that aren't 100 percent clear. 
And that's, I think, is probably the most problematic of them all is how long was he there? Why is the water still running? Why hasn't, you know, what's going on here? I don't want to pay the water bill at that house then. Yeah. <laughs> it's a good thing he didn't like, his body didn't like go over the drain, you know? <laughs> flood the basement. Yeah. Flood the basement with the body of Harry. I actually halfway expected when they show Stephanie, when she takes Stephanie Powers down there later and opens the door, I actually half expected it to be half flooded. <laughs> I just had another old dark house flash in my head. <laughs> and that's not a good thing. <laughs> no, not necessarily. No. Overall, what did you guys think of the movie? Thumbs up, thumbs down, yay, nay. I would say yay. I enjoyed this movie. It's not going to replace my top five, but I this was an enjoyable flick for me. I thought Tully Bankhead was amazing. I thought the rest of the cast was pretty good. I liked the various layers uh, going on in the story. Uh, the story was pretty solid. So, yeah, I enjoyed this overall. I didn't like the first half of the film. The, I thought the film picked up once Stephanie Powers was taken hostage. I enjoyed it much more from that point on. I enjoyed Mrs. Trefoil to a little bankhead the whole time. I thought she was great. I didn't think any of the other actors or actresses in this film were all that good. So I'm guessing I'm kind of more middle of the road on the film. Did you think they weren't good because they paled in comparison to bankhead or they just didn't yeah, deliver? I think, I think bankhead overshadows this cast. Yeah. I could see that. Yeah. I'm, I'm in agreement with you there, Scott, that, Especially when she's on screen, she, you, you can't help but just watch her at the detriment of everybody else, which is too bad because, again, Donald he's not in very much. But Donald Sutherland, he's a fantastic actor. Stephanie Powers is just cute as all get out in this. And Bankhead dominates in more ways than one in this film. I don't know. I'm kind of in between you two. I kind of like the, well, is it or isn't it a joke? I didn't catch it as much as Scott did, I suppose. I enjoyed the journey, and there are some weird levels that you could really start to explore this movie on. I don't know how often I'm going to go back to rewatch this one, though, especially when I'm in the mood for a Hammer film. Yeah. This one will probably fade away in my memory of being a Hammer film. I'll remember watching it, but I'll probably forget that it was a Hammer film. It's one that I'll pull out, I suppose, when somebody's like, well, Hammer films, they just did horror movies, right? It's like, well, no, they did this and Man About the House. <laughs> no, if somebody comes to me and says, Hammer, you're only doing horror films, I'm showing them Quatermaster from the pit. And Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, they did some awesome sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not going to replace anybody's top five. So No. I'm glad I watched it, though. I mean, that's one of the fun things about doing this show is that we find these movies that are hammer that nobody's <laughs> on the show has ever really thought about. So the downside to that, though, is that we can never find a lot of research material on them. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I am also glad to have seen it. I'm kind of wanting to learn more about Tulula Bankhead now. Oh. But um, I'm not going to probably watch this one maybe ever again. There's too many other movies. That's true. <laughs> too many movies, not enough time. Exactly. Where can people get Die, Die, My Darling? Is it on one of those box sets? That's a good question. Thanks. <laughs> I've been working on that one all morning. <laughs> Is it in the Icons of Suspense set? You can buy it uh, by itself uh, right now on Amazon. It's $15.91, or you can, Amazon has it for available for streaming to rent or buy. So it's not even in that icon, so suspend, well, I suppose that's probably not done by Columbia. So again, we run into the issue with who owns what rights to what Hammer film, so 
Yeah, it looks like uh, Columbia TriStar put it out on DVD in America. In the UK, Sony Pictures has it out there. Yep, Sony has it in their choice collection. All right. Now, before we start recording, Scott, you said you had some feedback? Yes, uh, we got some feedback from Craig in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. Craig writes in says, Gentlemen, let me start by saying how much I enjoy your podcast. Hammer films are by far my favorite genre of horror films, and I really enjoy the way you present each of the films you've covered. I especially enjoy your running joke regarding Vengeance of She. Yes. Insert Vengeance <laughs> of She trailer, stinger, whatever here. Oh, who is she? <laughs> However, in a way, I feel sorry for you guys because once you actually view Vengeance of She, you might have the belief that the worst is behind you. In dental terms, if Vengeance of She is a tooth extraction, then prehistoric woman is a root canal. <laughs> really? So he says, seriously, not even a scantily clad Martine Bestwick and a pot of black coffee can save you on this one. So enjoy making fun of vengeance, but know that the worst horrors await you. Keep up the great work, Craig. Prehistoric women, Martine Beswick. I, I don't know. She's fun to look at. She was fun to talk to when I met her. Yeah. But I don't know. I've, I've not seen Prehistoric Woman, but I have seen Moon Zero Two. And I know how bad that is. <laughs> like this is a challenge now that i have to go watch prehistoric women just to see you got to save it for the show though oh you don't want to disappoint craig you know what i'm starting to question the validity of this email casey because we didn't see this email before this and even <laughs> before we started calling or recording scott's like well i've got an email that i'm going to read you i haven't shared it with you yet is this scott's way of getting out of vengeance of she by mentioning another movie in a supposed email from a listener i just said air quotes <laughs> are you saying i made craig up Maybe. I, I, I don't know. At the risk of offending Craig, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Is Craig wearing a red shirt and lipstick right now? <laughs> <laughs> or is he uh, holed up in your shrine down in the basement <laughs> with the water running? Well, Craig, thank you for writing in, despite what my co-hosts say. <laughs> <laughs> How can people get old of us if they want to write in or, or call in even? If they want to uh, to write in, they can write us at podcast at 1951downplace.com. They can find our website at uh, www.1951downplace.com. They can call us at area code 765-203-1951. Just be warned that that is a Google voice line number, and it will shut itself off at three minutes. If you have more than three minutes that you would like to say to us, you can record a wave file or an MP3 file and send it to the podcast at 1951 Downplace email address. We are also on Facebook. There's a Facebook group out there. Just search for 1951downplace.com. And on that Facebook is where we have our viewers poll on what movie we're going to cover in July. And since this is the end of April, this will be the last episode that will come out before the voting ends for our listener pick month. What's in the lead, Scott? 
some movie called Vengeance of She. As of this recording on my side, I'm seeing Vengeance of She is ahead with 26 votes. 26 sick people out there. Oh, yeah. I bet Craig didn't vote for it. <laughs> no, he likes Vengeance <laughs> of She compared to Prehistoric Women. Oh, there's some good choices on here. Holiday on the buses. Oh, I've always wanted to look at that one. But there is a lot of people that are voting for Dracula has risen from the grave. And don't forget, those votes don't count because we're covering that one later this year. Yeah, it's already on the list. What about Dracula dead and loving it? Not a hammer <laughs> film, Casey. Oh, darn it. <laughs> darn it. I don't want to revisit that movie. <laughs> But that's our October film. So those people out there that have voted for Dracula has risen from the grave and there's 18 of you. Those folks uh, need to hit up our Facebook group and vote for something else other than Vengeance of She. Because <laughs> technically right now Rasputin the Mad Monk is in second place. Yeah. Which is one that people have been asking me about too. I've wanted to look at that one. It's Christopher Lee all crazy. I want to see that. So, again, that's in our Facebook group. It's uh, pinned to the top, so it shouldn't be uh, that uh, tough to find it. And uh, don't forget that there is an excellent opportunity out there if somebody wants to. Um, there was that ad in, uh, found in the newspaper <laughs> for anybody that wanted to, uh, to become a member of 1951 Downplace, and, but they must be able to watch Vengeance of She and be available in July. Just check the Facebook group for details. What are you going to do after we talk about Vengeance of She, Scott? You're going to change it to Moon Zero, too? <laughs> I don't know. I have a feeling that I might turn into the same type of character that Tulula Bankhead is in this film. After watching Vengeance of She, I maybe just turn completely religious and go crazy. Not that being religious and being crazy are mutually True. exclusive to one another. <laughs> Good point. Thank you. Good point. But to her level... If it, it gets you to stop wearing makeup... <laughs> I Man, that makes my cheekbones look really good. <laughs> that's satan making your cheekbones look very good <laughs> i look good that's all that matters <laughs> <laughs> is it hmm, satan? satan you know as, as on a completely unrelated to hammer films note speaking of looking good and vanity and all that i went to get my hair cut the other day and the woman sitting next to me getting her hair done was talking rather loudly with her hairdresser about all the work she's had done to her face, lips, you know, base lift, all this other stuff, and how her husband doesn't appreciate it because, you know, why, why do you want to mess your face up? You know, that's self-mutilation, whatever. And she said that she didn't understand because it's just like him working on his truck. She just works on her face. Oh, man. Wow. Going back to the fact that you were getting your hair cut, did you get a flat top to get ready for next month's Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed here on 1951 Down Place? Look at Scott keeping us on track. That's so adorable. <laughs> That's right. Next month, back to what people know Hammer for, the gothics. My favorite franchise with Hammer, Frankenstein Must Be Destroyed, which I believe is one that I saw last year theatrically here. They brought it in for... Was showing. I have to double check. Sometimes they do blend together, especially on a Sunday morning after I've only had one cup of coffee. Um, and who's in this film? Scott Bayo. Peter Cushing. <laughs> <laughs> and Veronica Carlson. Yes. Yeah, Peter Cushing, Veronica Carlson, and Freddie Jones, who is really good in this. I can't wait to see your thoughts or hear your thoughts on it, Scott. Casey, have you seen this one? A long time, though. Yeah. 
I'm excited to revisit. Oh, and Cushing is delightfully badass in this. Yeah. Delightfully. I have not seen it, so this will be a first for me. There's one exchange between him and Veronica Carlson and another character that's just sums up the movie for me and, and the character of Frankenstein in this film. I can't wait. Is it better than Die, Die, My Darling? I think so. Yes. Yeah. So that's next month here on 1951 Down Place. The rest of the year has already been plotted out as well, with the exception of July. That can be found at 1951downplace.com. Uh, later this year, we do have a Dracula film. We've got a Bela Lugosi film and a TV episode. So I'm looking forward to the rest of the year with the gang. Uh, if I do want to hang out with Casey and Scott before that, though, I can just listen to their home podcasts. Huh? Like that? Yeah. 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 Scott can be found over at Disney Indiana, DisneyIndiana.com every other week, rocking it Mickey Mouse style with his wife, Tracy. <laughs> yep, so we're getting ready for The Avengers. So a more recent episode, we're actually going back to two of the first Avenger films. We're going to talk about Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk. Nice. Casey's over at BloodyGoodHorror.com and a thousand other podcast projects, right? Yes. BloodyGoodHorror.com and uh, CinemaFromage.com. So you can find me over there every week on both of those sites. I was going to say, and Derek himself has another home podcast, Monster Kid Radio. And that's every uh, Tuesday and Thursday. Yeah, twice a week, MonsterKidRadio.net, iTunes, all that other jazz. As of right now, uh, the release of this episode of 1951 Down Place, Monster Kid Radio is about to drop its 200th episode. Ultimately, I think this Vengeance of She thing is yours and Casey's fault. Don't blame me. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying this whole time if I just said I was for Vengeance of She, somebody people would have voted for something else? Because, you know, really and truly, I do not want to talk about Rasputin the Mad Monk. I just don't want to do it. <laughs> Might be too little too late, my friend. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Again, May 15th, that's the um, cutoff for the votes on that. Oh, thank everybody for listening and for the feedback from Don and Craig. Craig. I'm sure you did air quotes again. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to coming back here with my friend Scott and Casey for Frankenstein and Peter Cushing and maybe another Scott Bayo joke. I don't know. And the announcement Ah. of what will be the listener pick month. You okay? Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks. Good. Glad to hear it, Casey. Not concerned <laughs> about you. <laughs> I'm a little hungry, but I've got my grapes here, so. <laughs> as long as you don't put any condiments on it. <laughs> <laughs> don't put salt on your grapes. Mm, ketchup. You, you whore. <laughs> I got ketchup. They're red and a condiment. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, then a second ago, you were telling us you were wearing a woman's shoes when you said you're in Anna's shoes. So now I don't know what to think about you, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you can pull off that uh, uh, skirt and sweater uh, combo as well as Stephanie Powers. Did. Sorry, Scott. Damn you, Casey. Now that image is in my head. <laughs>
I never said I was in um, Stephanie's shoes or Patricia's shoes. I could pull off the conservative outfit that Anne was wearing. Stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> I got the hips for that. 